Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 421st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow your own food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, you can begin making your own garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWANTTOGARDEN.com and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWANTTOGARDEN.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is making good use of rainwater in our community. We're talking with Ricardo Ugiri about rainwater harvesting and land management. Ricardo is the founding member of Holistic Engineering and Land Management, Inc., and is focusing on creating innovative approaches to improve conventional engineering. He works to integrate natural processes into large-scale engineering projects with his primary professional focus to implement functional design strategies to achieve multiple synergistic objectives. We're going to talk about that. 
Ricardo has a profound interest in reversing desertification through water harvesting and increased soil organic matter. This can have a measurable benefit to reduce flooding, improve both stormwater and soil quality, conserve water, provide passive irrigation for vegetation, and reduce the heat island effect. Ricardo's project experience includes infrastructure improvements for communities that have been adversely impacted by stormwater. Welcome to the show today, Ricardo. Are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. So I'm actually from uh, Arizona. Grew up on a cattle ranch and a cotton farm. Wow. Uh, went to University of Arizona for my undergrad and then graduate school at Illinois. Both degrees are in civil engineering and practiced civil engineering for approximately 15 years. Then my wife and I decided to start our family. And at that point, I was reflecting on what kind of uh, father I was going to be and what kind of legacy I was going to leave behind. So I actually imagined a conversation with my son about 15 years in the future where he'd asked if I knew the environment was degrading and if I was in a position as a civil engineer to do something about it. And I didn't want that answer to be, yes, I knew and no, I didn't do anything about it. And I, at the same time, I also wanted to instill the same agrarian values that I grew up with on the cotton farm and cattle ranch. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I didn't want it to be the chemically supported industrial agriculture. And so that's what led me to various regenerative agriculture practices such as permaculture and holistic management. I began to see opportunities to scale up and over into civil engineering and begin to present those ideas to uh, some of my clients in the public sector. So that's kind of really what has begun to unpack the vision for the company I work at and the things that I do on what I uh, my demonstration site, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Uh-huh. Wow. So first of all, I just want to give you a virtual high five about that conversation with your son 15 years in the future. We don't, Thank you. We don't do that enough. And it's definitely a concern. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't have any kids, but the work that I do is for my niece and my nephew and the kids of the world that are coming on to really take on this mess that we've created. Mm -hmm. Well said. So... You mentioned your demonstration project. Let's talk about that. Sure. So as a part of this initiative to identify regenerative practices and bring it over into civil engineering, specifically in stormwater, I was influenced by a TED Talk back in 2013 by a gentleman named Alan Savory. And his uh, focus has been to restore the world's grasslands. So I reached out to them and began to discuss my thoughts here in Arizona. And they actually had asked if I could submit a business plan and be a part of their what's called hub network. Wow. So I did, and it got accepted. It was actually quite a competitive process. It required that I go to London to the international conference and then to Zimbabwe to for a boot camp to learn uh, land management. Wow how to run a hub. And so basically that's really what this is. It's a demonstration site that I live on. It's about a half acre here in Phoenix and it's registered with the Savory Institute. And in fact, within the global network, it's the only urban demonstration site that exists. All the other demonstration sites around the world are either, either uh, large ranches, rangeland management, uh, savannas, uh, and so forth. 
So they're very excited about what we're doing because a lot of the investors that they talk to are wondering about what the Savory Institute is doing with things like heat island effect and various things that we're actually unpacking in a storytelling way during the tours that I give on the demonstration site. Mm -hmm. So the demonstration site is your house Mm -hmm. and it's also a project site for the Savory Institute. That sounds really cool. Can you kind of give us more context about what that really means? Sure, sure, absolutely. We moved to the property in early 2012 and on the MLS, the previous owners had revealed or disclosed the amount of flooding that the main home had was impacted by. Mm-hmm. In fact, they had to, at some major storm events, they would have to open up the front door and then the back door to let some of the flow oh my go gosh. through. Early in my career, I some of my, my mentors actually recommended that drainage engineers like myself should probably stay within a 100-foot vertical distance of the nearest floodplain. And I thought that was a good page to put into my playbook. But then when I started to study and explore the ideas of regenerative agriculture and water harvesting, I flipped that around 180 degrees. And because of my knowledge in managing stormwater, I was actually happy and saw a lot of opportunities within the site to begin to implement various earthwork practices and treatments on the site to capture as much water as possible and make that water as useful as possible to convert that into uh, food and building topsoil, building an ecosystem within a very concentrated one half acre site. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you no longer have water running through your house when it rains? We no longer have water running through the house. In fact, the, one of the biggest compliments I think my wife has given me through the course of our marriage uh-huh. is after the first basin that I constructed was exposed to a major monsoon event, she woke up the next day and saw it full, and she said, wow, you must be a really good hydraulic engineer. <laughs> nice. So you, you created basins, the basins filled with water, obviously they're soaking the water in, mm-hmm. and you do that by adding organic matter? Yes, that is part of it. So this has been, as, as you might appreciate, Greg, learning from nature, uh, uh, an entire process of that. And so the idea, as you probably know in permaculture, was to spend long periods of time just understanding the property, understanding the upstream watershed, understanding the flow patterns that affect the property, and then beginning to make slow and intentional decisions to be able to take advantage of the abundance that really exists in nature. And so upon excavating these basins, we also added approximately 13 nitrogen-fixing trees that are virtually practically fully grown as a result of the free water that we get straight from the sky. Yeah. And every winter season, holiday season almost, we begin the process of pollarding, which is a pruning technique. Uh, Essentially, you top the tree. Mm -hmm. And then we chip what is pruned, and we use that as mulch to continue, begin and continue to build the topsoil, which has a direct impact also on water harvesting that perhaps we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, And it's this relationship between soil organic matter and soil water holding capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the more organic matter in there, the more of a sponge it is. Exactly. Wow. 
In your company, you talk about water harvesting as a community. Can you say a little bit more about that? As a civil engineer, it's been a very interesting journey because going to school and learning what is taught (laughs) in stormwater management, in civil engineering, it's all taught about centralizing Uh water, stormwater, the resource of stormwater, and getting it, moving it into along the surface of an impervious area, into pipes, into a bigger pipe, collecting contaminants on the street from solvents and hydrocarbons and so on and so forth, and then into some receiving water, like here in Arizona, that could be the Gila or, or Salt River. Right. But nature does not function that way. Nature fundamentally functions by de- decentralizing uh, her resources, particularly the resource of water. And yeah. so that's one of the major takeaways by going back and studying regenerative agriculture and beginning to look at nature from that perspective, especially as a civil engineer. And so to answer your question, as a community, if we begin the practice of capturing every rain, as much as we can, every drop of water right where it falls and putting it to use, then we're really mimicking what nature intended before These large urban complexes came in with highways, fences, and railroad systems to cut off many flow patterns, such as water, but other things too, such as migratory grazing patterns as well. So that's really, I think, the the best way I can answer your question about a community-based water harvesting program and the benefits of that. Well, and this whole notion of putting that kind of infrastructure It's very costly infrastructure has always baffled me a little bit. About 20 years ago, my parents had a home up in Prescott. My parents lived in Prescott, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And as they were building it, they were designing the house and all of the gutters on the house to run the water out to the street Mm-hmm. not into the landscape. And I said, you need to talk talk to them about, you know, running the water in the landscaping and, and having it, you know, percolate in there. And then I walked downstream from where they were at and there were culverts that were taller than 10 feet tall mm-hmm. to run all of the water that was coming down. And it, ju- it baffled me that engineers would build a system like that. It just didn't make sense. And that's what you're dealing with, right? That is, yes, that is what I'm dealing with. That is, unfortunately, the the dogma continues to be taught to students at universities across the country and probably in the world. And so, you know, one of my missions is to ask those hard questions about what is it that we've been taught really from the industrial age compared to what nature has evolved into over millions of years, and why are we going against the grain of this intelligent system? Right. Toby Hemingway always used to say, nature always bats last. Exactly. Well said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So how are you uh, downsizing these so that they work on a smaller scale? These uh, practices in water harvesting? Yeah. Again, it really starts with the earthwork. Within the water harvesting certification that I received about six years ago, the organization that was teaching students to come in really hung their hat on three practices. And it began with earthworks. The earthworks was the first practice is because it's the least expensive. All you really need is a shovel, wheelbarrow, and, and some labor. Right. And you can begin to essentially look at the open space, let's say it's a residence, and begin to run calculations as to, okay, what is the upstream watershed or runoff area that could be coming onto your property or uh, directly rain falling on your property? And then 
with some simple calculations to determine what annual volume of water you could essentially capture from the annual rain that falls, let's say, here in Phoenix, then you can go and calculate what's the demand from various, whether it's low water fruit trees or nitrogen fixing trees, both of which we have on our property. So that would be the first practice in water harvesting. Then the, the second one is in the area of gray water. So it's this secondary reuse. And the fact that we're using water in our bathrooms, uh, particularly, of course, in the sink and the shower, uh, not, not the toilet water, but also laundry, various other non-toilet water is, of, uh, is an opportunity to reuse that water as gray water and can be put out for further uh, irrigation needs as appropriate. And then the final treatment or practice that was taught is in the area of rainwater cisterns. On our demonstration site, we actually have 8,000 gallons of rainwater cisterns. And it's been, it was very easy to fill, if you can imagine. This is, yeah. I think, a, a misunderstood concept. Most people think that the, it doesn't rain in the Southwest. Exactly. And in reality, it does. It just rains a lot at one time. When we first installed these 8,000 gallons of rainwater cisterns, I was somewhat surprised, but not overly surprised that within one monsoon season and winter season, I was able to get them almost entirely filled up. Mm -hmm. I have a 700 gallon cistern. That's a, the culvert style of cistern here at the urban farm. Right. And it's, you know, it's a seven foot tall culvert standing on end and it holds about 750 gallons. I watched it fill up in one event in about 20 minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. That's how much water was coming off of the roof. My job as a water harvester is to make sure that I have designed my landscape so that it's most effectively taking in the water that's coming. Is that what you do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's critical, especially in the, the space or the profession that I'm in, we're, we're beginning to see dramatic changes in the hydrologic cycle. Oh, yes. And I think a professor that I spoke with several months ago said it best, and that is when she moved, this was down in Tucson, in the early 90s, she, her general experience was that she remembered essentially during the monsoon season, roughly five one-inch events. Mm -hmm. And today, <laughs> she sees one event that's five inches. Yeah. And so these cisterns, in, in, in the spirit of going back to soil carbon and its relationship to soil water, it's a very nice mechanical way to capture water and, and replicate that water holding capacity so that you can extend the use of water over time and use it for passive irrigation in those kind of drought legs of, of the year. Right. Tell me about your company and the kind of jobs that you do, because it, it sounds really fascinating. So the company is essentially a, a vision that emerged, again, from this reality of becoming a father and wanting to leave a better legacy behind for my son's generation and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to get out of essentially the traditional engineering approach and form this company. It is, uh, has quickly become a high-end drainage company. We do work for local governments, uh, county and municipalities, things such as area drainage master studies and master plans. And that is essentially one major service line that has taken off pretty quickly. The service line that I'm focusing on is in the area of land management. 
and really pushing forward what it is that I summarized to you earlier in the podcast and how we can begin to look at managing land and rehabilitate land as a method for controlling floods, mitigating dust storms, as you're probably aware of here in the Southwest. They're Huge. now called haboobs. Yeah. And so, and it's through this practice of holistic plan grazing that I am beginning to unpack to those in the community, those decision makers within both local and state governments on how we can use animal impact and mimic those former grazing animals that existed here before desertification set in. Mm -hmm. And we had, again, the fences and railroads and urban complexes and this relationship between predators and pack hunting, excuse me, pack hunting predators and grazing animals. And so now what we're proposing to do is to engineer a management system by using planned grazing and taking livestock as a proxy to those former animals and having them work the land in a way different than the way I grew up in a conventional grazing format. Right. But it's it's bunched and moving as opposed to just out there roaming without any threat of predators. There's there's a little bit more kind of detail of that, and, and I'd say that it would probably benefit the listeners to, ex to describe the difference between conventional grazing, which is essentially very few animals in very large areas for very long periods of time, mm -hmm. and that is very uh, destructive to the land. It causes overgrazing and partial rest, whereas what we're talking about in planned grazing is very large amounts of animal animals in very small areas in very short periods of time, in anywhere from hours to days. And so we actually have some projects that we're working on to develop. So we have a, we're under contract with Cochise County, where I just completed the phase one of restoring 480 acres of fallowed farmland, mm -hmm. which is near the San Pedro River. And it's currently being conventionally grazed. And so what we've done is we've put together a plan and we're about to move into the implementation phase where we're about to get livestock out there and do exactly what it is I just described to rehabilitate that land, increase the soil organic matter, increase the soil water holding capacity, and has all these other bundling of benefits such as water quality and soil loss and so forth. So that's what it is that I'm driving here and building as a service line uh, within this company. So... Joel Salatin, uh, mm -hmm. episode 310, was just about a year ago in November of 2017. It, this sounds similar to what he's doing, maybe only on a bigger scale. It is exactly what Joel is doing. And other, I would say, master or advanced grazers across the country and around the world. Mm -hmm. There's other luminaries like Joel, uh, and I'm very fortunate to be associated with them and uh, even here in Arizona, in fact, uh, there are many ranchers who practice holistic management uh, and very successfully. And now it's what, what my role is, is to attach myself to those ranchers and the, the resource and knowledge that they have and begin to bring that into engineering so that we can solve the problems of desertification or the symptoms rather. Uh, such as dust uh, dust uh, issues, dust storms, uh, excess flooding, of course, being a stormwater management engineer, uh, stormwater quality, as I mentioned. Wildfires is another symptom of certification as well. Uh, wow, you get to do some really cool stuff. 
it's it's been it's been fun you know pioneering this it's it's been re well received there's been every now and again you know some eyebrows raised but that's to be expected you know there's always yeah. supporters and detractors and that's just uh, something that is a part of the part of what goes on when you're wanting to put out some new innovation or, or new vision out there yeah so you mentioned a water harvesting training mm -hmm. what was that there is a nonprofit out of Tucson called Watershed Management Group, mm -hmm. and they offer various trainings. And it's my understanding, again, it's been six years, that the main training that they offer is, uh, at the time, it was, a, I believe it was like a seven-day intensive training followed up with a, a test. And again, it's focused on these three practices of earthworks, mm -hmm. gray water, and rainwater cisterns. Nice. That's I. I suspected that's who it was, and I. But I wanted to ask. A great organization. They've trained many, many people in mm -hmm. these. Uh, you know, in these concepts. I want to unpack something a little bit more before we uh, jump on to the next part of the uh, interview here, and that is earthworks. You've used that word multiple times. Can you tell our listeners what that is? Sure. In the space of civil engineering, we tend to call that grading and drainage, but it's basically taking the existing terrain or topography and excavating it or manipulating it in a way we're able to capture water. So it's essentially creating depressions, no matter how, with the size of them, mm -hmm. so that water will flow into them and it holds them. It, and, and the water is held there and it, that, that water could be used as, a, as passive irrigation for, again, trees, plants, yeah. grasses, forbs, and so forth. When I think one of the things that they teach at Watershed Management is to slow the water down and percolate it in. Correct. Yeah. And that, that's exactly what I'm attempting to do on a large scale, not only with earthworks, but because the scale is so large is to use building topsoil through animal impact to, to slow and infiltrate the water. Nice. The practices that you use on your demonstration site, I'm assuming they're scalable up to your bigger projects. And some of the practices that you that you use on your bigger projects are, are scaled down. Can you tell us about that and how we might be able to learn more about it? Absolutely. Let's start with the second one first, Greg. Okay. The, the large scaling down. So again, going back to the Cochise County project, we are looking at bringing livestock in the form of cattle on, bunched and moving. Mm -hmm. And this practice of holistic plan grazing is very scalable. So actually on the half acre demonstration site, we are about to get sheep and we have the infrastructure in the form of electric netting. And I've ran the calculations and that's to, as an engineer, when I studied holistic management, which is a framework for decision-making uh, of resource management, it, it was heavy into spreadsheets and calculations. And so it spoke to me very well. And so I actually ran calculations on the land to determine at what point the land could have the carrying capacity to bring to begin to bring in small livestock like sheep. I've actually been using chickens in a chicken tractor to build up that carrying capacity. And now I'm at that stage after about two years of doing that with these planned grazing practices using chickens to now scale up to sheep. And so we're excited to get the sheep in and to begin to move them around and bring people over during the monthly tours and show them how topsoil can be built by using animal impact. And so it's essentially a very scaled down version of what it is we're uh, close to doing uh, down in Cochise County. Wow. 
So people can interact with you either on a large scale, like a county size scale, or they can come and see your space to see how they can implement this at their own home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us about the tours and when they happen. The tours are every third Saturday of each month. Mm -hmm. And we are currently running three tours uh, because it's gotten in the cooler months like now. We are doing a couple morning tours and an afternoon tour. And it's essentially about a 40 to 60 minute walk, depending on the questions that are generated. And there tend to be quite a few every now and again. And so we basically start by talking about the upstream watershed. I told them what the site used to look like before we made it the excavations for the earthwork treatments, uh, the trees that have gone in, lessons learned. Then we you know, show them the, the fruit trees and how the nitrogen-fixing trees, similar to getting free water in the atmosphere, we talk about how, how to get the free nitrogen above us through these nitrogen-fixing species and how they're, especially during pruning season, how they benefit the fruit trees. Uh, we're showing how the basins are cascading and how the when we get to some of the pastures, which we call paddocks, which is essentially the same footprint as the basins, uh-huh. basically be, beginning to describe how this is all interconnected. Uh, you being an expert in permaculture, it's all about how the output of one element becomes the input of another element. And that's really what this whole demonstration site is about. We show a little bit about the gray water and how that's affecting one of the paddocks or pastures and then how we're using the uh, cisterns. Uh, You mentioned Toby Hemingway. We have uh, keyhole gardens and some sheet mulch. And so that's underway with oyas attached to one of the cisterns. Uh And so that's essentially another practice. We're actually also making biochar, if that's uh, something you're familiar with. Oh, yeah. We've had some guests on that. Okay. Yeah. So we do make biochar on the property. That's actually one of the one of those practices that uh, very early on in exploring these regenerative ideas, I had r- written a paper to uh, the City of Phoenix Public Works Department, who manages the solid waste program, uh-huh. uh, on how to divert that portion of solid waste consisting of green organic material into a productive resource like biochar. And so we talk a little bit about that. Uh, And then we wrap it up with an integrated garden system uh, that needs to be overhauled, but it's just relationship that takes aqua culture and hydroponics to this next level that includes soil and fish and edibles and so on and so forth. And so that needs, uh, that's on the site and people enjoy that. Uh, but definitely one of those stations along the tour that I'm looking forward to having uh, upgraded. Yeah, wow. I want to see this place. Yeah, just come on over. And it sounds to me, so you said you used to give one tour, now you're giving multiple tours. So obviously there's a reason for that. What happened? Well, we're still scaling up. We've I've, I gave random tours every now and again, because, but because this is registered with the Savory Institute, and part of my commission or responsibilities, if you will, is to train holistic management, which I'm like in water harvesting. I'm a, an accredited professional in holistic management. Mm-hmm. And so the way I begin to do that is I start with the tours. People learn about holistic management as well as water harvesting, which I imbue into my training and then offer 
people to look into at least the fundamentals and if they want to take the full intensive training course then they can stick around for that and in fact Greg I actually uh, taught Cochise County and the county staff the 10-day intensive training course because they were so interested in what was going on on this project down there that they want to make sure that it's managed and maintained into perpetuity and so they wanted to make sure that the engineers were were trained in holistic management so that's really packaged the the full package of why i do the tour to meet the responsibilities i have with the savory institute and begin to uh, promote this need to influence people on how to reverse the certification that's epic that is totally epic i'm wow good job thank you appreciate it yeah you bet and the the way I asked the question the way that I did is, have you found that your tours are filling up a lot more? Well, growing an engineering company and this, this service line is takes quite a bit of my time. Mm-hmm. And especially, it's a, it's a unique offering to the marketplace, yeah. what we're doing. And so the tours are growing, but I have to admit, I would like for it to grow quicker because that's really... Right. You know, my passion, don't get me wrong, it's here at Helm, uh, at Holistic Engineering and Land Management. Mm-hmm. But I just feel there's just a need for me as an engineer to be out making real change, square foot by square foot, reversing the certification. Yeah. And so if I can get people to join the tours more, influence them about the training that I offer in holistic management, I, f- I feel like we'll be able to tr- turn this ship around of land degradation, especially in the arid southwest, faster. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Good job. Appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, I have to start by saying I absolutely love failure. Me too. I I just, there's so much to learn Mm -hmm. about failing. And there are, there's, there's literally daily practices of me failing. I actually enjoy getting up early and weight training, which in and of itself is a practice of failing, mm-hmm. and as a result, recovering and becoming stronger for that. So I use that as a microcosm for the, the bigger macrocosm. And I would say to answer your question directly or in a, a larger way is that I was wrestling with, really wrestling with myself when I was working at a local or regional engineering company here, going in, just doing what I was asked to do, and there was an impasse or a crossroads at, especially when my son came along, I was like, am I gonna continue to help develop subdivisions that maybe are not as beneficial to the environment, and it just continued to eat away at me. So I wouldn't say necessarily that was a a complete failure, but it was definitely a learning experience. And and perhaps the failure was that I I didn't break out, you know, and make the shift fast enough. Mm -hmm. But definitely by staying in there, you know, I learned uh, about things that I wanted to do differently. Uh And so the outcome of that was what is Helm and what it is I'm doing on the demonstration site. Nice. So I I just want to do a shout out to all of our listeners. More and more these days, when I ask this question, I'm getting the part of the failure is that I stayed too long where I didn't want to be. Mm -hmm. I hear that multiple times a month from people. So 
Take notice of that, guys and gals out there listening. If you're somewhere where you don't want to be, go where your heart needs to be. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I'd have to say just reinventing myself and continuing to work on reinventing myself. I wouldn't say that I don't look at success as this one pulsed instant shift. I see success as small incremental day by day building blocks that bang away on it hour after hour. And that's really what I've remained committed to, Mm -hmm. uh, given the failures that come with that and the challenges and the growth that comes from that. And so what has happened here at at Helm, uh, what I've done with the Savory Institute and the community that I'm a part of on a worldwide level, we just had our a month ago hub gathering in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so just to be in that space with, like you mentioned, Joel Salatin, these advanced grazers that are committed to seeing dramatic change in our environment around the world. At this point, I'd say this is this is a, a phase of success that I'm confident that I can continue to build and draw energy from to continue in this trajectory that I want to continue on. Cool. And what drives you? I bet I could guess, but what drives you? Basically, I'd say to leave the world in a better place than the way I found it when I arrived. I mean, that's what what it's all about. And that's really what happened when I literally caught my son when he was born. And at that moment, it's like my entire world changed. Changed. And Yep. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Yeah. Hope that wasn't too much (laughs) for the listeners. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, coming off what I just responded to you with, there's a book called Anti-Fragile by Taleb, and the subtitle of it is Things That Gain From Disorder. And in, in my opinion, he's done a amazing job unpacking in a, almost in a compendium of unpacking just things from you know randomness, disorder, uh, stress, and so forth, and how most people in our society fear that. Mm-hmm. And as a result, through modern technology, things and conveniences have, I think, kind of created this bubble that could have an, a large adverse impact on us. And if we just started to embrace this idea of, as you and I mentioned earlier, failure, of not fearing disorder, of not fearing randomness, and just understanding that it's there for a purpose and it's there for our growth... Uh, that's really what this book is all about in a very deep and well-thought-out way. Wow. And the name of the book again? Anti-Fragile. Anti-Fragile. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think I mentioned it before, I think, um, but I would add to it, and that is to know yourself and to know your context. In holistic management, they talk a lot about context, and I think that's very critical. A lot of people talk about setting goals. Mm-hmm. And anybody can set goals, but if you don't know what your context is or where you want to go, then those <laughs> goals may eventually be yep. adverse to what you want. So a simpler way of saying that is to know your value set. And then once you establish that, knowing yourself and knowing your context, then I'd say I'd ask a question each day. What's the, the smallest thing that I can do incrementally every day mm-hmm. that'll give me one step clo- closer to that goal. And it could be embarrassingly small, but as long as it's uh, this daily practice, I mean, some people don't even realize, I think, the power of compound interest 
And that's what it is we're talking about. Right. So, and it doesn't just apply to money. It applies to everything that people do once they set their mind and put themselves on a path to develop themselves. Yeah. Well, and in 1991, I developed a vision for my life. Mm-hmm. And that here we are almost 30 years later, and that vision still lives with me. And, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, basically it's I'm, I'm the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. That's, yeah, it's awesome. It's huge. And, you know, who knows if I will ever get there. But what it does for me is every day it informs my decisions about what am I going to be working toward. Yeah. So I hear you. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ricardo. Thank you for your time, Craig. And absolutely, you bet. And how can our listeners find you? So the company website is www.helm, that's H-E-L-M dot world. And HELM stands for Holistic Engineering and Land Management. Mm-hmm. And, and then the website for the hub is ArizonaSavoryHub.com. Perfect. And that's where we find out about the tours, right? Correct. Perfect. Thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash helm. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and every place where podcasts are served. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow your own food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, You can begin making your own garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned decanners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.